and you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So reads God's word and may he bless it to us now as Nathan comes to bring it to us. God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that you have um, brought us here tonight. And we pray as um, we look at your word that you would allow me to be faithful to it and that you would allow us to um, concentrate on what you have to say to us. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would work through our hearts that we might be changed as we um, look at this passage, that we might be able to glory in our Redeemer and that we might be able to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, please keep your Bibles open um, as I go through the passage um, to make sure that I'm sticking to what it says. I recently was um, introduced to a friend of a friend um, at a party, and the conversation um, eventually got on to me being a Christian. And the first thing they asked me when I said that I was a Christian was they had one specific question. The question was, what are you not allowed to do as a Christian? Quite an interesting question. Out of all the things that they could have asked me, that was the first thing that they brought up. And I think that it seems that many people in the world today view Christianity as more of a list of things not to do. Have you ever got that impression? The world often sees Christianity as limiting or restrictive. You're not supposed to have sex outside of marriage. You're not allowed to swear. You're not allowed to drunk, get drunk. You're not allowed to lie. All these things you're not allowed to do. Maybe some of that comes from the Ten Commandments. So if you look at the Ten Commandments, a lot of what you see is you shall not. You shall not. And maybe that's given perception to why people think that. Well, Christians face the challenge today of how we're to live in the world. There's so much pressure for us to live how we want to. Some actual people are saying that the Bible is outdated. So maybe it used to, um, you know, within the context when it was written, it applied. But nowadays, 
it shouldn't apply anymore. The, the actual old NIV version, um, the title of this passage is Rules for Holy Living. I don't think that's particularly an attractive uh, title. I wonder if I'd have gone to my friends and told them the title when I told them that I was preaching, whether that would have interested them. And it's easy as well for us as Christians to actually slip into that way of thinking as well. To start thinking that we're restricted, that there are all these things that we're not allowed to do. Or, on the other hand, as a friend said to me yesterday, sometimes Christianity cannot seem restrictive. And that's normally because Christians aren't living in the way that the Bible says they should. Now, the Colossians um, face the question of how they were to live as Christians. So they had lived their life previously without Christ, and then through the gospel they had turned to him. So they had this tension of walking away from their old life and having the new, and trying to understand how they were to live in light of that. And they faced many temptations like we did today. And it seems as you read through Colossians that there are two kind of main things that Paul seems to be worried about. The first is that they'll return to the old way of life that they used to live. And the second is that they'll start living for new philosophies that false teachers have been speaking to them about. So we're going to look at this passage tonight and we're going to ask one simple question. What does it look like to live as a Christian? And we're going to look at two different points. Um, I know that normally we should be looking at three because we're evangelical Christians, but we're going to do two. (laughs) And the first point we're going to look at is union with Christ is the Christian's identity. And the second point we're going to look at is union with Christ is the motive to put sin to death. So first of all, we're going to look at verses one to four. Union with Christ is the Christian's identity. So in the last section of Colossians that Trevor was speaking to us um, last week about, we specifically saw that in Christ we have it all. So Paul was specifically warning the Colossians that they were no longer to live by religion, they were no longer to live by spirituality or strict customs, because they no longer belonged to the world, they'd left that way of life, and now they belonged to Christ. If you look down with me at verse um, 23 of chapter 2, just look down at the last um, kind of sentence. Paul specifically says that regulations lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So that really poses the question, I guess, how then are the Colossians and how are we to live as Christians? Well, Paul begins immediately, actually, in verse 1 by giving us the motivation So before he tells us how to live, he's going to tell us the motivation for living that way. So look down with me at verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. This essentially is going to be the peg that Paul's going to hang his whole argument on. This is, um, I suppose, the starting point, but not just the starting point. This is something that Paul's not going to get past through the whole of this section. This is the vocal point of what he's saying. The Christian is with Christ. The Christian has union with Christ. So first of all, in verse 1, we see that the Christian is united with Christ in his resurrection. We read about that previously in chapter 2. As Trevor said last week, Christ died in our place. And as Christ died in our place to take our punishment... He later then rose from death, as we know. But as he rose from death, 
It was as if we rose as well with him, because we were dead in our sins. Romans um, uh, speaks a lot about this, and we also see this in um, chapter 2 of Colossians in verse 13. Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your nature, God made you alive in Christ. As Andrew said earlier this morning, there was absolutely nothing that we could do. We were dead in our sin. There was absolutely nothing that we could do to change our status in front of God. But through Christ dying and then being raised, we also were raised to life. We were spiritually dead, but Christ gave us life as he rose from the dead. And that motivation, as I said, that Paul begins with is something that we won't go past through the whole of this chapter. But what he says afterwards is he gives us two specific commands following that motivation. If you look down at verses 1 and 2, we see that he says two specific things in light of this. Set your heart on things above and set your mind on things above. And that's because if the Christian has really been raised from dead to life, then actually the natural response of that is for all of their thoughts and all of their longings to be with Christ. John Piper actually gives a really great challenge around this. Um, What he says is, if you were, as a Christian, to go to heaven, and you could have literally everything that heaven has to offer, but Christ wouldn't be there, would that be satisfying to you? It's an interesting challenge. If you could have everything that heaven had to offer the eternal life, the new body, with all of your friends and family, but Christ wasn't there, would that be enough for you? Well, for the Christian, their heart and mind should be on heaven, not because of what heaven brings to them, but mainly because the fact that Christ is there. Because their saviour has gone up there and they're wanting to be united to him. And that's how we're united to Christ in his resurrection, but obviously we're also united to Christ in his death. Paul also speaks to the Colossians about their union with Christ in death, and then he also speaks about the consequences of that. Now, in the Old Testament, um, as some of you or many of you might know, they had a priest, a high priest, and the high priest would essentially go into God's presence, and he would be wearing um, a different assortment of clothes. And one of the things that he would be wearing is he'd be wearing on his breastplate 12 different jewels. Now, those 12 different jewels weren't just to look good, but they specifically were supposed to represent the tribes of Israel. So as the priest passed through into the presence of God, he was representing the people. One man representing all of the people in the presence of God. And what the high priest was to do is he was to take a sacrifice into the presence of God and sacrifice for the sins of the people. Christ is the ultimate high priest. He is what that was pointing to in the Old Testament because he bears his people's names. And what he did in his death is that he bore their names in his death. Meaning that spiritually, although we were dying with Christ, God was actually um, essentially counting our punishment upon him. Through Christ dying, we was actually taking the punishment that we deserved so that God might count us righteous. So we were united to Christ. We were cleaved to him. It was as if we died spiritually with him, but it was completely through the work that he did, even though we deserved death ourselves. And because of that, in verse 3, we see that there is a direct consequence. 
We see, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, I struggled with this a little bit when um, I was doing my preparation. What specifically does it mean to be hidden in Christ? How does that make sense? Well, Christians have died to sin spiritually. And we've been counted as righteous by God through that. But we still live in this world. We still struggle with temptation day to day. There's still sin in the world that we're in. We've not seen the full effect of what Christ has done yet in our lives. Our bodies haven't been transformed. We're still living on earth at this time. We're still waiting to be revealed as what we truly are in Christ. And that's what it means for us to be hidden in Christ. The world, the world can't see us for who we truly are yet. They can see some of the effects, but they won't see truly who we are until something specific happens that Paul is going to speak about. And the stunning thing about verses 1 to 3 is that all of this is in past tense. All of these things are things that Christ has already done for us. They're not things that we are waiting for him to do, but they're things that he's already done for us. And they're things that he's done regardless of where we're at. He's done these things for us. He hasn't waited for us to get right with him. But he's done all of these things, and he has united us to him. But we also see in verse 4 that we are going to appear with Christ. Look down at verse 4 with me. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So although it speaks in verse 3 of of us being hidden in Christ, there's this contrast in verse 4 that we are going to be revealed in Christ. Christ is going to be revealed in glory. He is going to return. And he is going to get the glory that he alone deserves. So just as Jesus, as we read, ascended through the clouds as he went back to heaven, the disciples were looking up and, and waiting for something to happen. And the angels came along and they spoke to the disciples and they said, just as he went up to heaven, so he's going to return through the clouds. And the fact that Christ is in heaven is, means he's, he's actually in the presence of God. So he's representing us right now in heaven to God. So when he returns, he's not going to leave heaven. He's not going to leave God's side. He's going to bring the new heavens and the new earth down to us as he appears in glory. And the mind-blowing thing is that our true identity will no longer be hidden. But we're going to appear with him in that glory. Though we brought absolutely nothing to the table except our rejection of him, he is going to glorify us. And that, for me, is, is completely flooring. It's incredible. I have done nothing for Christ, and yet he is going to share in his glory with me. As the whole of the universe sees his glory, and, and everybody can see that, the whole world is going to one day look upon Jesus and see him in his glory, and he's going to share that glory with us. The, um, the footballer, um, John Terry, who should appear on the screen behind me, um, faced a lot of ridicule, actually, in the press. Um, now, essentially what happened is, um, am I coming, is this still, is this, ah, that might be better. Um, so essentially what John Terry did is um, his team, Chelsea, were in the Champions League final and he actually couldn't play in that final because he was suspended. He'd got a red card in the game before. And what happened is, although the team played and he was on the sideline, when they eventually won, 
suddenly John Terry appeared in full kit as if he'd played with a big smile on his face and he got up and he lifted the trophy and the press absolutely ridiculed him for this I think behind me there should be some funny memes that were made about how John was going to go and take the credit for many other things um, that people have done um, in the past and in the future but essentially what happened is John Terry was ridiculed because essentially what people were saying is your team has got the glory and you weren't part of it but you've come in place and tried to take that glory now Actually, John Terry did play for the football club in the lead-up to that, um, that win. He was part of the team, so really he was a little bit part of their success. But how much more mind-blowing is it that we didn't bring anything to the table, and yet when Christ is glorified when he returns, he is going to share that glory with us, something that we don't deserve in any way, shape, or form. We have union with Christ completely through his work, through his death, through his resurrection, and through his return. That means that our identity should be fully in him. That's why in verse 4, Paul specifically says, when Christ, who is your life, he should be everything to the Christian because he's done everything for us. So our identity should be completely set on the fact that we are united with Christ. So a big question comes then, how should we live in light of that? So we're going to look at our second point, which is verses 5 to 11. Union with Christ is the motive to put sin to death. Now this section is um, quite an interesting section. I think um, if I showed it to many of my non-Christian friends, it probably wouldn't help the perception that Christianity isn't a bunch of rules. It wouldn't necessarily help the perception that Christianity is just a list of things that you can't do. It seems to give weight to that argument quite a lot. Now, we've seen our identity is in Christ, but the reality is is that we're still living on this planet. The reality is, is that as Christians, we still sin. I'm yet to meet a perfect Christian. So what does it mean for us to set our hearts and minds on things above? as Paul was speaking about in verses 1 and 2. Well, I want you to look down at verse 5, and we're going to actually zoom in on just one word that Paul uses. And that word is, therefore. Paul begins by reminding us that everything that we're going to read in these verses is in response to the Christian's union with Christ. And that's what's so radical about the Christian message. This isn't a list of things to do. Rather, this is a direct response to what Jesus has done by uniting us to him. The Bible isn't a rule book, but instead the Bible is a love story where God, who's done everything for us, shows us the greatest way that we can enjoy his creation. If you look at verse 5, it speaks of this statement, put to death. It's speaking of putting sin to death, which seems to be quite a radical statement. But in reality, actually, it's a beautiful reminder of what Christ has done. Christ died himself so that we might die to sin through him. As we read in Romans 6 verse 2, we died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? Our natural reaction to Christ's work in us should be that we should live out our new identity. 
killing what we've already died to. Now, it might seem strange that maybe I'm contradicting myself. You could say, well, Nathan, you're saying that we've died to sin, but then you're saying that we need to kill sin. Which one is it? If we've died to sin, surely we don't need to kill it anymore. And that's where the tension comes into play. We've died to sin spiritually, but as I said, we still live in this world. We still live in the flesh. The Bible often speaks of us living in the flesh. It's this idea that spiritually we've died to sin, but in the flesh we still have a sinful nature that we're born with. And what Paul's saying here is he's making it crystal clear to us in verse 5. Put sin to death. Sin should be entirely wiped out of our lives. And you know what? This makes really hard reading. And it actually also made hard preparation because it challenges the heart. I myself, um, as, as a person, I'm naturally a creature of compromise. I would much rather leave sin on a leash, so to speak, than put it to death. I'd rather just leave it there and not really bother with it. And then when I want to indulge in it, I can just have a little bit. Than actually completely kill it in my life. I'm far more happy to just sin every so often and feel like I'm doing okay as a Christian than actually challenge myself as to how I can be killing sin in my life. And that's been a real, real challenge to me of what is my attitude? Is my attitude somebody who's wanting to kill sin? Who's saying, spiritually I've died to sin, so I'm going to try to kill sin in my life? Or am I somebody who says, I've died to sin, but I'm still going to indulge in it every so often? If you look at the list um, that Paul gives us in verse 5, he first mentions the area of sex. Now, the Colossian church actually lived in quite a sexually promiscuous um, culture. Most of what probably their experience of sex was, was in the realms of prostitution. But actually that still applies to us today. We still live in a sexually promiscuous land. But notice how the list begins with the outwardly obvious sin. But as you go through the list, it becomes more subtle. It becomes something that becomes almost more inward. And when we get to the end of the list, what we actually find is the root of all sin, which is idolatry. All sin will specifically come from us putting something in God's place. From saying, God, I know that you have done everything in my life, but actually I want to put this as God in my life. And that applies to all desires, That applies to the area of sex, but that applies specifically to any desire we have that is an evil desire, that is a sinful desire in our lives. Do we keep sin on a leash and indulge in it when the urge comes? Do I need to move? There we go. I just have to speak louder. Do we keep sin on a leash? and indulge in it when we want to? Or do we seek to completely kill it? When we have the urge to actually sin, do we consider? Or do we think, how can I completely wipe this out of my life? Does it seem over the top to you to delete your Facebook account? Or cancel your Netflix subscription? Or get rid of your laptop? Or stop speaking to that attractive colleague at work? 
maybe that's because actually you're more comfortable in indulging in sin than actually putting it to death. But remember, actually, t- actual temptation itself is not sin, but indulging in that temptation is. And our actions alone won't put sin to death. You could put all the rules in place in your life, as we all know, but sometimes we'll still slip up because we have a sinful nature. Rules alone are not going to be the thing that is going to stop us from sinning. But all sin, as we saw, comes from taking, putting something essentially in God's place. And although it's so easy for us to compromise, although it's so easy for the world to encourage us to live in the way that we want, actually the Christian is the person who turns around and tries to put death to that sin, who flees away from temptation. To kill sin, our affection must be for Christ. We must take the affection that we have for something else, whether it is sexual sin or some other desire, and we must then replace it with something else. I'm not having the best of times with this. How are we doing, Ben? Okay. So if we look down at verse 8 as well, look down at verse 8 with me. Paul says, But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. So Paul's been looking specifically more at desires in verses 5. But if you look down at verse 8, you'll see that he's focusing more around, I guess, the words that we use as Christians. And this is an area that it's so easy for us to compromise on. The temptation to speak as the world speaks. Or to speak our minds when the desire takes us. The tongue is a really powerful tool. Which can cause a lot of damage. Not just to our witnesses as Christians. But also to our relationships. And Paul's message is to completely and utterly kill that sin at source. Imagine that you realized that you had gangrene or cancer at the tip of your fingers and you knew that minute by minute it was going to start to spread. How strange would it be if I realized that and then I said to you, okay, cool, Um, I'm just going to go off to the cinema. I've just heard that there is something that's going to be growing in me that's going to cause death and all I'm doing is I'm being relaxed about it. I'm not dealing with it. Instead, surely I'd want to cut that off straight away. And that's what Paul's saying. Sin will kill us. And he's saying that we are to kill it before it grows in our lives. We have a half-time change. What specifically would I say I'm struggling with? Or if you can't find anything in that list, maybe think, is there something else in my life right now that I'm struggling to put to death? Is there something in my life that actually I'd rather indulge in than give to God? Have a look down at verses 5 and 8 quickly and just have a think to yourself while I get my notes together. Is there something in your life 
that you're struggling to kill, that you're struggling to give over to God. Look down now at verse 6 with me. What Paul does here is that he reminds the Colossians in verse 6 that God's judgment is coming because of rejection of God. This shows the seriousness of sin. And it's so often easy for us to belittle sin and to belittle how serious and offensive it is. But actually, God is coming to judge everybody because of sin. That's the reason that Christ had to go to the cross and die. That's how serious it is. If we look down at verse 7, what we see is that actually Paul speaks about how the Colossians used to live in this way. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. They used to be sinners, but then they came to God. They have taken off the old self, as we read in verse 9. Their spiritual identity is no longer the old sinful self. So Paul's saying they shouldn't live by that anymore. But so often we can still feel dirty because of previous sin. There is a famous book that I actually mentioned last time I preached, so I definitely can't use it as an illustration again. Um, a famous book called Pilgrim's Progress, read by, um, written by John Bunyan. And in it, it begins with somebody called Christian. And Christian has a massive weight on his back, a massive burden on his back that he just can't take off. And what that's supposed to represent is it's supposed to represent his sin. And Christian has this burden on his back, and it's all the regret that he has from the past, all the bad mistakes that he's made, and he just can't get loose of it. And he keeps asking the question, how am I to take this burden off me? Will someone take it off me? Is there something that I can do to get rid of it? And he begins this journey after reading um, of the gospel. And there's this great part when he eventually comes to the cross. And he has this burden on his back that he's been walking with, that's been bearing him down. He has filthy clothes from when he's um, dropped into, um, I think, the pit of despair. And he walks up and he sees the cross. And as he walks up to the cross, he continues to walk it until he gets to the foot of the cross. And at the foot of the cross, as he looks up, what happens? His burden drops from his back. And it rolls away, all the way down the hill, into the grave. And he's then given new robes. His old robes are taken off him. And he's given new, gleaming white clothes to wear. And he says this in response. I think it's up on the screen. Thus far did I come with my sin. Nothing could ease the grief that I was in. Till I came here, what a place is this? Must be the beginning of my bliss. Must hear the burden fall from off my back. Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed rather be the man that was put to shame for me. At the cross, Christ took all of our sin so that all our sinful rags, all the burdens that we carry might be taken off and that we might instead put on the new self. And like we heard in Colossians 1, we will still sin, but the gospel is a renewal process. 
See verse 10, we're being renewed. Our identity now is being united in Christ, but we so often still struggle with sin. When you become a Christian, you don't suddenly become a perfect person. You still will struggle with the things that you used to struggle with. But spiritually, the old self is dead. It has been taken away. And I think so often, one of the biggest reasons that we struggle with sin is because we forget our identity. We forget that spiritually we've died to sin. But instead, we try to live how we used to before we knew Christ. But the joy is that we're being renewed into the likeness of Christ in the image of his creator, as it says in verse 10. There's a great story told um, about Augustine. Um, Augustine um, was somebody who, before he became a Christian, um, was a a very sexual person. He was having sex with prostitutes. Um, It was very open. Many people knew that he was a sinner in that regard. But there was a transformation that took place in his life. He, uh, he became a Christian through the gospel. And shortly after that, um, he came across a woman who he used to sleep with. And she came up to him. She gave him the old lines that she used to do. She fluttered her eyelids and tried to seduce him. But what happened is he ran away. And as he ran away from her, she said to him, But Augustine, it is I. It seems strange that he didn't recognise her. Maybe it was because she, she was wearing some different makeup. Surely this person wouldn't run away from her. Surely, again, he'd want to indulge in sex with her. Augustine turned around to her and said, Yes, but it's no longer I. You see, Augustine realised that a radical change had taken place in his life. The old was gone and the new had begun. He was not to live by his old sinful nature. He may well have been tempted in that regard, but he actively fled the situation, seeking to put sin to death in his life. We can't, as Christians, let sin have a stranglehold. There can be no compromise. No flirting with sin or getting close to it or seeking to indulge in it. Paul's saying that it must be completely and totally killed in our lives. And the wonderful truth that we come to in verse 11 is there isn't an individualistic pursuit. So often it feels as Christians that we're on our own, that we're facing a trial or temptation that is just for us. But the reality in verse 11, as Paul says, is that we are all in Christ. Christ died for us, but he didn't just die for us individually. He died to bring us together corporately as the church. There are no divisions in his people, but as we read at the end of this section, Christ is all and is in all. Because we've died to sin, we now have a new identity, and we must seek to destroy sin and live for Christ. So to end, what does this specifically look like for us in Chesington? I think for us in Chesington, the, um, the real danger for us is for us to be comfortable. We're in a great church, we have great teaching, we've been taught so well, but I think it's so, um, so easy for us to compromise, to maybe just try and belittle sin a little bit, but not truly try to kill it. 
And the reason that I say that is not because I'm looking out and judging people, but it's because I see that in my own heart every single day. Sinclair Ferguson really, really helpfully says, the true foundation for dealing with sin is union with Christ. So to end, there's going to be two points that I'm going to try to help us apply this to our lives. The first one is in terms of our identity. Union with Christ is our new identity. And we need to constantly be reminded of that. Every single day, every uh, passing hour, we need to be reminded that we are united with Christ. And I'm not going to try and come up with anything radical except to say that that is by the consistent time remembering the gospel. Through the reading of God's word, through praying, through being around his people. As Paul reminded the Colossians, we should be reminding ourselves and we should be reminding one another constantly preaching to ourselves and preaching to one another. I think in most, um, most people would say that if you start talking to yourself, you're probably turning mad. But in the Christian walk, if you're not talking to yourself, then you're not reminding yourself of the great gospel. You're not reminding yourself of how we are to live. We should be preaching to ourselves daily, talking to ourselves, reminding ourselves of our new identity in Christ. And we should be reminding one another. It's so easy in our friendship groups to, um, to get to a point where we're comfortable with sin. Instead of challenging one another and encouraging one another to put sin to death. Now we've all been saved if we're Christians. So we're not seeking to kill sin because that's what makes us right with God. But instead it should be a joyful response to what Jesus has already done in our lives. By making us right with him through his death. Before you're tempted to sin, and even when you're in the midst of temptation, we must preach to ourselves that we're a new reality. As Augustine said, it's no longer I. Our spiritual reality is that as Jesus is in heaven, so we are in heaven with him. So we're called to live that reality out. Secondly, putting sin to death. Take a moment now just to look down. I know we did it earlier, but take a moment now to look down at verses 5 and verses 8. And just read through that list and think to yourself, at the moment, what is the sin in my life that I'm struggling to kill? Or is there something else that isn't in this list that is a real struggle for me? And I'm just going to give us a moment of quiet to look down at those and lists and think about what am I struggling with in my life at the moment? What we must do with sin is we must put it in the open. It's a daily struggle to sin. I've not woken up one day in my life so far and not had to struggle with sin. I've not gone throughout one day and not had to struggle with it. It's a daily struggle. It's a struggle that all of us will face, not just tomorrow, but even as we go out from this building. As soon as you pull out um, and start driving and maybe someone cuts you up, the old sinful nature springs up again. As soon as you get home, the old sinful nature strikes up again. We're constantly in a battle with sin. But one of the things that we must do is shine a light onto it. 
Take the time to actually think and meditate on what am I struggling with in my life at the moment? What is the sin that I am specifically struggling with? Maybe that's not just one thing, but it's a good place to start. What is an area that I am willing to compromise on for instead of actually putting God first? We've been brought by Christ into his kingdom. So take the time to be honest with God about that struggle. Take it to him in prayer. And if you're struggling with wondering what sin am I struggling with, then ask him. Lord, reveal what sin I'm struggling with in my life. Reveal to me how you want me to put this to death in my life. And as I said earlier, we're not just doing this individualistically, but we are a corporate body. So share the sins that you're struggling with. I'm not saying that we should all go and give our deepest, darkest secrets to every single person, but there will be people that you're close to, Christian brothers and sisters who you can share with and say, can you pray with me? Can you keep me accountable to this? I had a great time the other day when somebody um, asked to meet up with me and shared something that they were struggling with. Lo and behold, I struggled with it as well. Most of the time, when somebody says, or when you tell somebody that you're struggling with a sin, they've probably struggled with it as well because we're an imperfect people. But let's, be a, let's create a culture in the church where we're sharing with each other how we can be praying in terms of sin and a culture where we're seeking to help each other kill sin and to live out our new identity. Don't leave sin in the darkness and be willing just to compromise with it, but shine a light on it which comes from seeing it in comparison to the gospel. Become accountable with people and seek to kill sin in your life. So what does it look like to live as a Christian? Well, it's to know that we're united with Christ and to then respond by putting sin to death as the old self has been taken off and we're now to live by the new self. Let me pray for us that we might accept this and apply this to our lives.